Okay, hi and welcome to the very first of the Guru Performance podcast, which we're going to call We Do Science. Today I'm very lucky to have with me James Morton and Graham Close, because we've been filming two days of lectures on the ISSN diploma. So what I've decided to do is get these guys in on with me to have a chat about a few of the things that we've been discussing on the course which I think would be of interest to all of you listeners. So I'm just going to dive straight in, um, but uh, just to say hello, James, and hello, Graham. Hello. Hello, Lauren. Great stuff. So the first question I'm going to ask you guys, we're not going to muck around here, we're just going to jump straight in, is should athletes avoid carbohydrates? James, I think that's for you. Well, that's a very controversial question to ask straight off, but I would say the answer is absolutely no. I don't think athletes should avoid carbohydrates, but what they probably should do is change the amount of carbohydrates they eat, depending on the duration and intensity of that particular session, or indeed the competition in the sport that they're undertaking. And carbohydrate guidelines shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach, it should be very individualised. Yeah, so we obviously we've got this dogmatism in our industry, particularly where some people are going, oh, I'll just only train low or only train high and um, today actually we've had a lecture from Graham all about nutritional periodization and I would assume that that's very much how you pitch this this idea although you might espouse this idea of there are significant metabolic benefits from um, training low um, there are obvious undoubtable benefits to competing high yeah well I mean let's strip it right back to basics in, in the short term Acute high-intensity exercise performance depends on carbohydrate metabolism. Now, most sports have some form of high-intensity efforts in that particular activity, and at that particular time, it's usually the person that can perform at the highest intensity that will win. In that particular moment in time, then you rely on carbohydrates to fuel energy production. Now, if you haven't got enough carbohydrate available within the muscle or extracellularly, then you can't sustain the high rates of work output that you need. There's very few sports that rely purely on fat metabolism, if any. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I mean, Graham, you were talking today about, you know, the periodization of, of carbohydrates. Yeah, absolutely. It almost appears these days that you need to sit in one camp or the other. You either need to be a carbohydrate advocate or shun all carbohydrates from an athlete's diet. And in most areas of nutrition, that just simply isn't the case. Um, there's certainly be times when I'm working with athletes who will be on some high carbohydrate intake. Take for example the day before a game when we're getting ready for game day. And there may be some days where we're lower on carbohydrate where we're looking to increase fat oxidation um, or even look to do some specific low carb training to get some uh, additional um, cellular adaptations to our session. So um, in answer to your original question, should we avoid all carbohydrates? I completely agree with James and I would, I would say that's a 100% no. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff. So I guess whilst we're kind of on that, that topic, um, we might also apply this to the idea of, of training in a fasted state. So James, do you, do you feel that the fasted state training um, is a good idea? Obviously we're thinking along the lines of periodization, but, but can it improve body composition and performance? Well, I mean, the whole concept of fasted state training evolved from carbohydrate-restricted training. And fasted state training is one approach to restrict carbohydrates. 
So essentially fasted state training means that you have your breakfast after you do your morning session as opposed to the traditional advice of before your morning session. Now the obvious benefit of that is assuming that you can still maintain the same intensity of your training plan then you rely more on lipid oxidation when you're fasted. So if you've got an athlete that needs to lose body fat like a boxer for instance that I work with then it makes sense to do a session that you know that you can fuel without additional carbohydrate to do a fasted. Not only do you promote lipid oxidation but numerous researchers including ourselves have showed that you actually promote mitochondrial biogenesis which is a key adaptation of endurance training. Now people will always come back at you and say yeah but there's no long-term studies that have shown that fasted state training improves body composition more than fed state training and they're probably right but what we also need to consider is that controlling what people do in the rest of the day over an eight-week training program in a controlled laboratory study is one of the most difficult things to do but if you strip it back to the biochemistry if you want to oxidize fat and reduce the size of your adipose tissue stores and you know the training of fasted increases lipid oxidation from adipocytes then obviously it makes sense to then extrapolate to the long-term scenario yeah no, absolutely and i think it's worth mentioning that just because um, a study you know, says something, you can't argue the other way because there hasn't been a study. You know, it just hasn't been done yet. So um, yeah, it makes sense to me. So um, if we're considering that there is a benefit to fasted state training, and of course, you know, bodybuilders and boxers have of course been doing this stuff for years, and maybe it's now that science is, is sort of catching up to this, that obviously brings our mindset to maybe things we could do before we do other things. But what about the sort of the post-exercise scenario, Graham? Um, that makes us think about this anabolic window of opportunity that there is sort of presented within the sports nutrition industry. What, what, what do you have to say about that? Okay, so if we're talking about the anabolic window, I presume we're, we're now moving over to protein a little bit more. and. It's been again. It's one of these highly debated topics. Where, where certainly in my era of being taught sports nutrition, it was all about if you don't eat food within the first minute of finishing training, you've wasted your time and you should never probably eat ever again uh, because you've missed that anabolic anabolic window. And I think the studies have now been done quite eloquently from the likes of uh, Stu Phillips over in McMaster that. Probably that anabolic window lasts for as, as much as 48 and not 72 hours. It, once you give yourself a, a stimulus in the training session, when the amino acids then get provided, we've got that, you'll get that anabolic response. Now, does that mean I think we should be waiting 24 to 48 hours to feed the protein? Absolutely not. It makes sense to feed it straight away. Mm. So you, you do get an immediate response. And then, do you know what? Let's feed again three hours later after that because we know that's about the right timing. And the studies are now coming out to suggest about 0.3 grams per kilogram body weight would be a, a good amount. So you're looking around about 25 to 35 grams of protein. And, and yes, it makes sense to give it straight away. But if you're training in a gym, for example, where you've not got uh, some food with you or something like that, don't think that you've wasted your training session if you wait 25 minutes an hour to go home and feed yourself it's it's not a use it or lose it and, and i think that is a misnomer that probably doesn't need put into bed oh yeah I, I mean you see it all the time at the gym don't you, you you've got these these guys that are 
coming in from their lifting session and before they've even had the shower you can see them anxiously ripping over their protein bags and whatnot trying to neck down their supplements mm. on the idea that their muscles are going to sometime drop off which brings me to um, uh, a similar point actually which is uh, this idea of and I saw this uh, as recently as yesterday where you see some people taking their supplements between sets BCAAs usually um, I mean there's going to be two parts to this question, which will be how important are sports supplements generally anyway, particularly to performance. But like in that scenario, since we're talking a little bit about timing and you've done a lecture today about periodization, I mean, is there really any point in popping BCAAs between each set? I mean, it's a great question. But what we've also got to remember is that when a muscle cell contracts, protein synthesis is effectively switched off during the contractile period. I mean, you still can respond by making protein synthesis during exercise, but the rates of protein synthesis are reduced during exercise because the muscle wants to make ATP. It doesn't want to build new proteins. In that situation, though, all you're effectively doing is priming the system so that when you stop contracting, there's already a supply of amino acids to go to the muscle. I don't think you're doing yourself any harm by doing it. So, so do you think, so maybe from a liquid BCAAs, that would be a, you know, I can see that yeah, that's a good it's idea. It's certainly not going to do any harm, and especially actually when your glycogen depleted. Yeah. When you are going to be oxidizing protein for energy, yeah. then it makes sense to then put some protein back in. Yeah. And we, we're actually doing those studies at the minute, and for an endurance individual. No, that's great. I'm glad because I use BCAAs a lot with myself and clients. But what about actual capsules? Because you also see people munching on capsules between sets, and it does sort of like the question of are, are they even going to be digesting and absorbing, talking about pharmacokinetics mm. that we talked about earlier. Um, liquid maybe, but the form of administration has got to be important at that time, surely. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know anyone that's looked at the, the plasma leucine response to a capsule versus a liquid versus a solid. Louise Burke's done some nice studies confirmed solid proteins are digested and absorbed less quickly than a liquid whey protein for instance but when there's no reason why a, a leucine capsule shouldn't be effectively entering the circulation quite quickly either i would imagine i just can't think of anything worse in between a set trying to pop 10 or 15 pills down at yeah. the end of each set and i think a lot of people would benefit a, little, a bit more from training a bit harder you know, i'm being completely honest rather than worrying about at the end of each set popping a few pills yeah, I think, I think the take-home message there is definitely the training stimulus is probably more important, right? Yeah, Un yeah. unless you're glycogen depleted. Yes. Yeah. At which okay. point you should probably ingest protein before, during and after. Yeah. Especially yeah. as a two-hour ride, for instance. Yeah, great stuff. So um, uh, that's kind of the first answer yeah. to that question. So guys, what do you think generally, I mean, just generally speaking, how important are sports supplements to performance? Okay, well, the first thing is, is the clues in the name, which is it's a supplement, and it's certainly not a substitute, and you can't supplement a poor diet. It's as simple as that. So for me, diet has to come first, and whole foods and eating well, it's got to be the first thing. And I find the people I work with generally make the biggest improvements by sorting that out before we start the supplements out. That said, there are certain things where there is enough evidence that you can have a performance enhancing effect that you're not going to get in from a regular diet. And then things like beta alanine comes to mind where you would have to eat kilos worth of 
turkey breasts, for example, to get the amount of D-trialine that you would need. Um, you could say something similar for vitamin D, which is found in very few uh, foods. Creatine is one of the most researched supplements out there, and I think there's convincing evidence, certainly in some people, that there's an effect there. And then when we come to protein, well, I think we're looking at convenience now. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I work with athletes ranging from 60 kilos all the way through to 120 kilos. So if you said to me, get a 60 kilo athlete on two grams per kilogram of protein, that can be done quite easily. 120 grams can be done quite easily um, from food. Whether they'd be able to do it first thing in the morning, straight after training, convenience might come into it. You then say, what about a 130 kilo athlete who's maybe on two and a half to three grams per kilogram? And now you're saying 400 plus grams of protein, which is the equivalent of around about 14 chicken breasts. Now then that becomes a lot harder. And then supplements again may be convenient for. So I certainly don't think there's any magic bullets. I think a healthy diet has to come first. And then I think there are certain supplements that are beneficial and then there are some that are convenient yeah no excellent i mean yeah it, it's all in the name isn't it it's a supplement not an instead of so um we're uh, uh shortly going to come to the end of the of this uh sort of first podcast but i wanted to i've got two more questions for you one of which is my favorite topic of all which is is a calorie a calorie so how do you guys feel about that particular statement I'm asking a lot of controversial questions today, aren't <laughs> um, So I think if we strip it back to theory, then of course a calorie is a calorie mm. in terms of the energy that can be produced or liberated when you can bust the food in a bottom calorimeter. But how that calorie is actually stored and metabolised in a human physical system can be different. And there's numerous studies out there to suggest that, and the best one that springs to mind in my memory is one by Jeff Folek, where they put groups of obese patients on an energy-restricted diet for 12 weeks. So two, two trials, one group had 1,500 calories, as did the other group, but one of the conditions was a high-fat, low-carbohydrate intervention, and the other group had a high-carbohydrate, low-fat intervention, and the weight loss was completely different in that the high fat and low carbohydrate group effectively almost doubled the weight loss. So for me, that one study alone tells me that a calorie isn't a calorie in terms of how it's metabolized and stored in a living physical system and how it influences physiology. So I know it's very controversial and a lot of people say that just count your calories, but yes, I would agree, count your calories, but more importantly, count the type of calories that you're consuming and perhaps even more importantly is the timing of when those calories are coming in. And I, I mean, I always preach that nutrition's quite basic because if you get those three things correct, the timing, the type, and the total, then you're, you're 90% there for me. Yeah, no, I, be, I completely agree. I mean, I, I always get into this topic because I find it quite interesting and it's most certainly a case that we don't eat calories, we eat food. Um, but obviously how that energy is partitioned and utilized is, Yes, it's influenced by genetics and a whole variety of other factors and the thermic effect of feeding and leptin and greening and all that. And yes, to a certain extent, the total amount of food that you ingest is going to count, but it most definitely is influenced by timing and type 
Um, so and also the exercise that you yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. The context. It's all about context, yeah. isn't it? I think most of this stuff is uh, misunderstood and explained out of context, yeah. and you know, is a calorie calorie? Well, it depends what we mean by that. So, yeah. I mean, a, lo a lot of people say to us, "I want you to give me a diet." As mm. a very simple question, and the first thing I say back is, "Well, let me see your training plan first, yeah, and then we'll build your energy intake." around your training sessions. You, you, you can't just get people blanket diets without seeing the structure of the day. Yeah, I hear you on that one. Okay, guys, so let's bring this to um, a close and sort of a burning question that um, I always like to ask guys like yourself who aren't just academics, but you also work with people, so you're also performance nutritionists. You know, what is the best piece of advice you can give someone looking to become a performance nutritionist and I know that we could turn this into um, a podcast all in itself but just sort of a final parting point from you James first. I think number one is obviously get a good education mm. um, and when I say get a good education I mean get it from people who are academics and researchers but also try and get it from people that work in the real world with athletes because then you're going to learn from people that are skilled in both worlds and then eventually that will translate to making you able to walk in between both ones. Second, but by no means least important, and it might sound strange, is actually to be passionate about exercise itself. I really don't understand how people can work in sport and sport nutrition when they don't do any exercise themselves. I mean, how can you sit down and talk with an athlete when you haven't experienced what it's like to go through those types of emotions and pain barriers? Or if you want to give someone types of interventions, do it on yourself and see how it affects you. Don't ask anyone to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. Absolutely. I, I think it becomes very clear when you start actually working with people that if, if you're not really passionate and you don't, you, know, you don't talk, if you don't walk the talk and talk the walk and all that, they won't believe in you. And of course, as you were lecturing earlier about presentation skills, that becomes part of your ability to communicate doesn't it, with, with, with your yeah, clients? I mean, we take Graham for instance, Graham's an expert in rugby nutrition. I haven't got a clue about rugby. Mm. I don't think that I'm skilled to go walk into a rugby club and start interacting with rugby players. I couldn't even tell you the rules of rugby. Whereas other sports like football, like boxing, like endurance sports, then I'm more than comfortable talking to people. And again, it's probably acknowledging our limitations as well. Yeah, limitations and scope of practice. I think I think that's excellent. Thank you. And Graham? Yeah, I think James has really summarised it well there. You know, I talk about a three-point approach, which is get your academic qualifications and make sure you, you choose uh, good ones, as James says, taught by ideally academics who know the, um, the real world as well. Really important to know your literature. And as James was saying today earlier in one of his uh, lectures, you know, the best way to pretend you know what you're talking about is actually to know what you're talking about and the more time you can spend reading uh, keeping on top of contemporary literature but also going back to the original research papers you know and if, if you're going to work in um, uh, sports nutrition and you want to understand carbohydrates I think you need to go all the way back to look at the earlier work by Bergstrom and Holtman and really understand where this science started uh, and then the final point is understand athletes and, uh, and as James says get to know them, speak with them, uh, realise that your communication style will have to change dependent on the athlete. I've had conversations with athletes who want me to 
um, draw down gut digestion so they can understand what's going on at different stages with digestive tracts. I've had other athletes who just say, shut up geek and tell me what to eat. And you almost, you need to be able to go from both levels, but you also need the skills to know when to switch between. And, and, and that will only come with practice, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, you've helped us with the end of this, Graham, I'd like both of you geeks to shut up now. And, <laughs> and uh, I'd like to thank everyone t for listening to our very first Guru Performance podcast. Um, we Do Science will be both a podcast and a video concept that you can find more information about at guruperformance.com, where you'll also find information about our Twitter and uh, iTunes address, etc. Anyway, I'm Laurent Bannock, and I look forward to bringing more information on all things performance nutrition to you guys soon.